0: Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com slash breakthrough. This is Masters in Business with
1: Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: I have a really interesting and special guest, an unusual guest this week. His name is Lawrence Juber. Uh, you may know him if you are a Beatles fan or a Paul McCartney and Wings fan. He was lead guitarist for Wings in the late '70s and '80s, but he is really uh, a musicologist and and best known amongst a musical audience for the work he's done uh, on guitar. He he is a fingerboard guitarist, uh, really a a master prodigy. I don't know what else you you can say about him. Uh, a brilliant technical player. Lots and lots of other guitarists have a universe of respect for him. And when you hear some of the things he plays, you'll understand why. He he has, I don't even want to say dabbled. He has opened up a, a, a new world uh, of alternative tunings. And that allows him to do some really fascinating things with the guitar, including... Uh, playing the the melody, the lead, and the vocals at the same time. And you'll hear him at the end of the show play two or three songs as well. Most of the interview, he had the guitar on his lap, and he would demonstrate different things as he was speaking. If you are at all interested in classical music, rock and pop, or the Beatles, or if you're interested in the financial aspects of being a musician, in the modern era. I think you're going to find this to be uh, quite a treat. It was really delightful having him. He's a, a charming, dry-witted Brit, and, and that very much comes across. So without any further ado, my conversation with Lawrence Juber.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio
2: We're going to try something a little different today. My special guest is not from the world of finance, but from the world of music. His name is Lawrence Juber, and let me just give you a few moments on who he is. Born and raised in London, he began studying the guitar at age 13 or earlier, began earning money playing the guitar at that age. Upon graduation from university, he immediately began work as a session guitarist his first project was with the producer George Martin. He was tapped to join Paul McCartney in his then band Wings in 1978 as their lead guitarist for their world tour. He has been a studio musician on thousands of sessions, recorded countless television theme shows, film soundtracks. You may have heard his lead in the James Bond movie theme, The Spy Who Loved Me. It's the James Bond theme in the movie, The Spy Who Loved Me, voted Guitarist of the Year by Fingerstar Guitar Magazine, named one of the top acoustic players of all time by Acoustic Guitar Mag. He has recorded 23 solo albums since 1982, with a new album coming out in the not-too-distant future. Many of those albums were released to critical acclaim, and he has won two Grammys. No less than a guitarist than Pete Townsend has called our guest a master of guitar. Lawrence Juber, welcome to Bloomberg.
1: Well, thank you very much. Who is this guy anyway? Who is this guy? So
2: I was describing you to somebody, Uh and the interesting thing is I said, here's a guy who has played pretty much with everybody in the world of rock and roll, and he could walk down the street and nobody's going to recognize him. He's really incognito.
1: Well, you know, musicians, a lot of musicians are incognito. Yes. Unless you pursue the star track right you inevitably kind of fall slightly out of the limelight and that suits me just fine because my ambition from the time, I started playing when I was 11.
2: Did you grow up in a
1: musical household? No, no. So totally. you're the first musician. I Until recently, I thought I was the only musician in my family. Not I, counting your daughter, who I know well, writes yeah, songs. Well, yeah, that's that's different. Yeah. But, so uh, we, We'll get to that. But I discovered through some family tree research a year or so ago that I actually have a third cousin, once removed, who's a <laughs> sax player in England. So not exactly um, immediate family. Uh, no, but I think that what it is is... There were a lot of tailors in my family, and as the generations went on, some of them got into haute couture. But my dad really was an apprentice tailor. And I think that for me, understanding music and appreciating music and the guitar came out of pattern recognition, the, the patterns of music, the mm-hmm. shapes of musical phrases, the shapes of chords on the fingerboard, and the shape of, of all of that, I think was was something that kind of underpinned my my musicianship
2: so my next question was going to be who your early musical influences but you're going to tell me it was Weavers and and Taylors
1: not what I'm expecting <laughs> no well no, that's the, a good uh, album name by the I, way weavers, weavers and Taylors, and Taylor's. there yeah. you go I, I mean I'm just talking in terms of the neurological mm-hmm. side of it the the inspiration was I mean you know I, I got into listening to music probably you know slightly pre-teens mm-hmm. and you know, 1963 in particular in England was this incredible year because there was this kind of swell of Beatlemania that right. that started at the beginning of the year with Please Please Me, mm-hmm. and then went through Please Please Me, From Me to You, She Loves You, and I Want to Hold Your Hand as these, you know, every three months we would have a new Beatles single. and And it would blow up. By November, it was full scale beatlemania and mm-hmm. my 11th birthday was in november and the beatles had been on the royal command performance a week before and my parents realized that i was never going to be- play saxophone like my dad wanted me to right and it was guitar had kind of become legit at that point because the beatles were becoming so successful and once i picked it up i just never put it down and when did you realize you can earn a living with a um, guitar I was 13, local band leader started bringing me in and playing weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff.
2: Actually paid gigs <laughs> at paid age gigs, 13. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I was making more money than babysitting or working in the supermarket, the so, local supermarket on Saturdays. And, so.
2: and it's certainly better work than uh, stocking shelves.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did, you know, I, I, I washed my next door neighbor's car because he had season tickets for Tottenham Hotspur and... I was a soccer fan back then. I was going to say,
2: for an American audience, please. Yeah, uh, please that was explain one of the London is. soccer
1: teams. And at that time, was the, like, the best soccer team in England. So, the
2: question that I think everybody who listens to you has to, at one point or another, think is uh, you're raised on the Beatles and a lot of classic rock and roll. How do you
1: morph towards fingerboard style and acoustic guitar? Well, I started off on acoustic guitar and you remember 1963 wasn't just beatlemania it was also the folk boom mm-hmm. so bob dylan Joan baez judy collins you know and we had our english versions of those too and i was really intrigued by the solo guitar players because the idea of a single performer standing in front of an audience with just an acoustic guitar and often no pa mm-hmm. you know but just that self-sufficiency really was appealing to me. It was one particular piece of music called Angie that was written by... An Not English, the Stone song. No, a different Angie that Paul Simon recorded on one of the early Simon & Garfunkel records. Of, oh, sure. Written by Davy Graham, who was a, a British guitar player. And that involved playing a bass line and also playing the melody at the same time. And because I had kind of dabbled with piano when i was very young but then the piano went away it was at my mm-hmm. grandmother's house and they sold it for some reason that the the idea of being able to play complete musical statements
2: meaning the bass and the bass and the, and the, the melody and
1: the rhythm and, and everything else led me to really being intrigued by that and by the acoustic guitar and and so i got into fingerstyle guitar like ragtime and and uh-huh. you know <laughs> You know, stuff like that just really, just really grabbed me.
2: I'm Barry Ritholz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lawrence Juber, master of the guitar, probably best known to an American audience for his work as lead guitarist for Paul McCartney and Wings. He has also recorded numerous soundtracks uh, for television and movies, as well as produced 23 original albums. You know, you said you picked up the guitar, really the week I Want to Hold Your Hands was released by the Beatles. How influential were they amongst everyone else to you as a musician?
1: The big influence was really that they kind of led the charge of of this kind of musical youth culture that that overtook England. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the 50s were kind of a gray period in, in England, you know, the economy really took a hit after the war, and, mm-hmm. and it was not that great economically. And then the 60s come along, and things really start to kind of pick up. Right. And and you have this kind of, the, this first wave of the working class baby boomers, or, or you know, that picking up instruments, and it wasn't just the Beatles, it was the Stones and the Animals and the Dave Clark Five, and, you know, a little later, the Kinks, and, and so many English bands that It was remarkable to be growing up at that point in time when there was just this incredible explosion of music. And the Beatles obviously were kind of like the top of the heap because they were the most successful, but they really weren't the only ones. And and my my interest went much broader than them very quickly. And it wasn't like I would sit down and, and meticulously work out George Harrison's guitar solos. My consciousness was, oh, that's cool, What's the concept behind it, mm-hmm. and how do I do that for myself?
2: You're really a bit of a musical historian, and I'm a is musicologist. It, yeah, I was going to say philosopher, yeah. musicologist. Actually, I'm a guitarologist. 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 Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the covers you do. We have we have a lot of time to talk about other stuff.
1: Here's my beef with covers in general. Covers being a like copy, co- of a, a copy of somebody else's song, exactly. where you reinterpret that. So
2: either. What what I primarily hear is either a note-for-note note recreation, which makes me sort of shrug and say, why bother? Mm-hmm. Or something that's so far afield, it's barely recognizable as the original. And what I love about your covers, especially of the Beatles, is that it's immediately recognizable as the song that it is. But it's a very fresh version of it. And you hear nuances and subtleties in the melodies that you might have overlooked in the full four-piece or more band version of it.
1: Well, when you strip it down to the musical elements like that, sometimes it exposes really interesting kind of inner workings of it. Uh, but, but, but here's the thing. I mean, there are times when my, my interpretations are actually pretty much no accurate, but... Doing it on the guitar, on a solo guitar, and doing it perhaps, for example, with, you know, in an altered tuning, gives it a different texture, not only a a different um, sonic texture, but uh, sometimes a different emotional texture. It has a different resonance to it. And and I think what's really important with, with, especially with Beatle tunes, is because I play it to an audience who know the words, they know the tune. And there's that. Unsung part of it where the audience is is kind of internalizing Mm -hmm. that their own experience with it. So there's a kind of a, a depth to it that goes beyond simply the guitaristic or simply the musical. But I try to be true. I try to be true to the melody, the spirit of the original, to try and encapsulate it. And sometimes it means changing things because I might find that a particular song has. A, a certain angle to it that perhaps wasn't communicated in the way that it was originally recorded. I mean, you know, not every Beatle recording is is perfect. It's they're iconic. Mm-hmm. I hate to use that word because it's become so overused, but, but it's it, true. it's appropriate. They're for iconic, the but not necessarily entirely perfect for the 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 fabric of the song. Mm-hmm. You take something like "In My Life." You know, and the Beatles version beautiful of it. Song, beautiful song. Beautiful melody. a great melody. song, and the, their version of it on. Rubber's soul is very consistent with the style of the album, but that's a song that could be taken so many different ways. And, Give and us has a,
2: an example.
1: Uh, of course, I'm in the wrong tuning for that. <laughs> I'm actually in I'm in Dadgad tuning D A D G A D. Take something like something for example. Frank Sinatra covered that tune, mm-hmm. and I was just kind of tossing that out there. But if I'm going to do an arrangement of it, I'm probably, as well as referencing George Harrison's, the Beatles version, I'm going to reference Sinatra's version, mm-hmm. for example, because that gives me a different place to be. Here's another example: uh, Blackbird,
2: mm-hmm. one now, of my all-time favorite. Now the ball thing tunes. about
1: Blackbird is that you know all the guitar players learn that, but right. that's the accompaniment. You can't get the melody in. So I had to reconceive it. You know, just doing it differently. And I
2: see what you mean by vertical as opposed to horizontal.
1: One of my references for that is Kenny Rankin. Because I used to do gigs with Kenny, and that was one of the tunes that we would play together.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I'm not just mm-hmm. thinking about Paul McCartney singing the song. You know, and Kenny Rankin had this incredible, you know, it sounded like he had a French horn in his throat, this incredible tone. So you know, I'm looking for a way to articulate the melody that has perhaps a little more horn-like quality to it, rather than the kind of the Liverpudlian tinged you know, McCartneyism.
2: When you released your first Beatles album, LJ Meets the Beatles, and I want to say LJ 2000? plays the, Beatles, plays the yeah. Beatles. That was in two thousand. Right. Yeah.
1: What was the response to that? Very good. I mean, I got lots of great reviews. It got voted one of the top ten all-time acoustic guitar records in Acoustic Guitar Magazine. And sold quite well. I mean, for you know, the 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 acoustic guitar market is not like a, a huge market. I mean it's comparable with the classical market, you know, typically like a a hit classical music album may sell 10,000 copies. But this
2: has a little crossover to pop music. It has crossover and and
1: it, it, you know, and it still sells. I mean, I personally
2: recommended it to countless people who are Beatles fan, and they all come back and say, "And I get repeat
1: business on that because people wear out the CD." <laughs> <laughs> I'm Barry
2: Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lawrence Juber. He is a guitarist extraordinaire. Toured the world with Paul McCartney and Wings. Has recorded numerous television and movie soundtracks, including the James Bond theme for the Spy Who Loved Me. And lots and countless other uh, studio work, uh, a two-time Grammy winner. Let's jump into some of the more arcane, technical, and altered tunings that you seem to like. (laughs) Tell us about
1: Dadgad. Dadgad, D-A-D-G-A-D, was supposedly developed by Davy Graham, a British guitar player. Mm -hmm in the um, 60s 50s in the yeah in the late 50s early 60s it really is a, a drone tuning for him to jam with Moroccan musicians it's and got that, that got, flavor sure that got picked up by Jimmy Page you know for example Cashmere. Yeah. you know it's it lends itself to that kind of thing but what i discovered when i started fooling around with it was that it also has great possibilities in terms of arranging pop music. And and not just current pop music, you know, like rock music, but kind of the great Anglo-American songbook in mm-hmm. general. So, you know, it works... Just works great for all kinds of stuff.
2: So you can do Cole Porter, Jerome Kern, <laughs> Rogers yeah. and Hart, down the whole list.
1: Yeah, uh, Gershwin, um, and I, I did an album of um, uh, Harold Arlen tunes, mm-hmm. for example. I've got the world on six strings, and, and a number of those tunes I did in in that tuning because it just kind of lends itself to some really interesting concepts. I mean, you take something like uh, Crimea River. and how the, the tone and the texture, sonority of it. You know, and it gets these voicings that are very, almost pianistic in the way that the notes spread together because you have two adjacent scale tones, you have a G and an A, mm-hmm. which means that you can get these kind of, these kind of p- pianistic kind of sonorities or, or, or more or- orchestral. It's, it's a way of orca- orchestrating on the guitar. And then there's also three D strings and two A strings, mm-hmm. so octaves. Again kind of a, p- a pianistic kind of approach. Um, And then it lets me do, you know, where I can use both hands on the fingerboard and get Mm -hmm. these kind of rhythmic effects. I should Um, be running film in here. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm
2: I'm sorry I'm not.
1: Oh, you know, there's plenty of stuff on YouTube. You don't bother
2: trying to take that stuff down? The copyright
1: issue isn't in it? Or is it just promoting? Well, I mean, there's um, some of the... Interestingly enough, I can't... If if it's a cover tune... Mm -hmm. And somebody posts it on YouTube, which they do.
2: You don't have. the right I, ca- to I have don't have it.
1: the rights to take it down. The copyright owner of the tune has to take it down.
2: You don't have rights in the performance.
1: No, not not like you do in the in the copyright. Huh? Fascinating. Yeah. I had I had no in idea. In fact, you can monetize the performance.
2: And how do you? Because you go out and
1: play it again. Well, or, or because the you know if if there's advertising attached to it, then there's some monetization involved. But you know the fact is that YouTube is gargantuan as it is. Right. And as Useful as it is as a promotion, is is really is a a kind of a, a nasty beast on the back of intellectual property
2: rights. There there have been uh, all sorts of articles recently about people who who've released songs. They've gotten two hundred million plays, and they get a check for eighty seven dollars. Well, yeah,
1: but it gets a little twisted because the structure. Now we're kind of drifting away from guitar tunings, Mm -hmm. but the structure of of royalty payments is that you have the mechanical and the synchronization rights which belong to the writers and the publishers. Uh-huh. But since the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you also have a performance royalty. Right. Now, for example, a songwriter may have something played on Spotify or Pandora, which will generate a minute royalty a for the writing side. But the royalty for the performer which doesn't exist in terrestrial radio, but Uh in the digital medium, the royalty for the performer is substantially higher. So I'm very happy when March rolls around and I see my royalty statements from SoundExchange for airplay that I get on my Christmas music on Pandora, for example. I'm
2: Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Lawrence Juber. He is the two-time Grammy Award-winning guitarist who toured with... Paul McCartney and Wings. He's released 23 albums, many of which were to critical acclaim. Let's talk a little bit about the future of music. Recording isn't the moneymaker it used to be. So how do musicians make a living today?
1: It's funny being on a Masters of Business show because I was never a master of business. I just knew I play guitar and I can get paid this much for this gig. So I never really learned until I worked with McCartney, I never really learned about the music publishing side of things and how the revenue really comes in, not so much from the artist side, but from the writer publisher side. Because you, that's always been, you know, governed by statutory royalty rates. So mm-hmm. it's not like somebody can. Well, they do. I mean, record companies will still, you know, try and cut you down on the statutory rate. But, but at least you know that there's a, a copyright tribunal that says there's nine point one cents coming to you for every copy of this particular composition that you write and publish. So I learned a lot from working with Paul because he had become, even by the late seventies, had really become the largest. Independent music publisher in the world.
2: You you describe yourself as having a master's in music at McCartney yeah, University. That's right. Yeah. So what did he teach you about about that business side? In terms uh, really, of,
1: in in terms of making how you can make money on that side of things too. Own your own, your own songs. Own your, own your your material, and and you know, I I never considered myself to be a composer until that point where it was like, oh, you mean you don't have to just sit there and wait for a bolt of lightning to come from the heavens? That you you know, it's it's a job. It's you know, Paul's very has this great work ethic as far as he Still goes touring. into the studio. He, but, but not just the touring, but I'm going to write. I'm going to write a tune today, or I'm going to write a tune this morning and another one this afternoon. I mean, it's, you know, it's like what John and Paul did when they sat down and they said, well, once they started making money, it's like, what, what should we write today? Well, let's, let's write a swimming pool let's <laughs> <You know>, had <laughs> a new roof. I mean, it, you know, you because if you have a hit song, I mean, there is you know that side of the equation is is a valuable one. More recently the the performance royalties have have kicked in for for players for performers in a way that never existed in the past because you as a studio musician for example you wouldn't get any kind of back end on radio airplay you, but you, even the artists never got any radio airplay oh really royalties. so
2: so as a studio musician you get paid hourly and then you're out
1: well but then there's musicians union you know mm-hmm. i'm i'm i mean i've been in you know, the English Musicians Union, I've been a member of the M since the mid-70s. I have a pension coming from, you know, the, all the work, especially in the TV and movie end of things. That, um, that seems to be better structured and, and more lawyered up. Uh, to a large extent, yes. But but it's also, it's evolved now. I mean, there's there are different funds. There's a secondary payments fund where if you play on a movie score, for example, some Tiny portion of the of the growth, the distributor's growth of secondary markets, like if it goes to DVD, or Mm -hmm. you know, that generates payments to musicians, and and that's the kind of thing that in the dry spells, that's one of the things that musicians can survive on in LA. It's a really odd situation because you go and work for a studio as a as a musician and play on a movie score, you are an employee, but you're walking in there with perhaps with a two hundred thousand dollar violin right. you know you you have your, you bring your own equipment to the table you you kind of are defined really as an independent contractor right. by anything except the fact that the studio says no you're an employee because you're doing this work for hire and you know and a lot of and us And we
2: get the copyright a
1: lot of us end up with you know with corporations so that you can work that better what's happened is as as the revenue from Record sales has dropped off. What has kicked in, as well as the digital royalty streams for performers, is also uh, all the licensing stuff. It's like my daughter, Elsie, is a songwriter, and she co-wrote a song called Fireball for Pitbull, which was a hit a uh, mm-hmm. couple of years ago. And that got licensed by a Spanish telecom company for a, for a commercial, for example. And and so everybody that participated in that, the writers and the publishers, all get you know some piece of it. Plus... The performance, the TV performances generate performance royalties on the writer's side. So that gets processed through BMI or ASCAP or uh-huh. you know, whatever their, their, their membership is. So you have to kind of learn how to be cognizant of the revenue streams. And which, then, which
2: used to be CD sales, and now it sounds it's like composition and performance. Well,
1: except that you know, if you were an artist and not the writer... Your record royalties were never really that great mm-hmm. because record companies would always find ways to cross collateralize or right. to to you know to take promotional budgets out of your royalty stream or use controlled composition clauses where yeah there may be 14 tracks on your album but we're only going to pay you for 10. Kinds of things, you know. Where there are, you know, there's always the lawyer, lawyerly side of that. Not, um, not a very
2: nice business,
1: was it? It never was a nice business. Uh-huh. Um, the, the opportunities are there, and there are some people that have been making actually decent money from YouTube videos, for example. If, really? you, if you understand how to monetize that stuff. So, the, the, the opportunities are there. But the problem is that you go study music in a conservatory. They don't teach you about how to make a living doing it. You know, one of my pet peeves is that you go study classical guitar, you can come out after three, four years of conservatory and not know how to string a chord sequence together or know how to put repertoire together to play at a wedding, for example, Uh. which may be outside of teaching, the only real avenue for for making a living is, is doing those kind of live performances. Because if you're a classical guitar player, there are maybe 15 classical guitar players in the world who can make a living as concert performers. So, you know, teaching and and playing local gigs becomes a a viable way of of making a living.
2: That's really really quite interesting. So,
1: we've heard over the years
2: horrible stories about problems with managers, stealing from their clients. Why is it that it always seems that Big names too, uh, people mm-hmm. like Billy Joel, and I think mm-hmm. Sting had an issue, and you know, it's a whole well, run well, of Billy books. Joel
1: in particular, because I mean his manager Artie Rip <laughs> had the perfect That's name.
2: They, <laughs> yeah. You know that should have been a warning early on. Yeah, don't don't have a business na- manager named Rip. Yeah. So, um, so why does this always seem to be millions of dollars later we discover? Are, are artists not watching their dollars that closely that well, millions could go out the door before
1: anyone notices anything how how can you if you're also full time writing recording touring doing all of the stuff that goes along with it interviews um, photo sessions, everything that, you know, what Joni Mitchell described as the the star-making machinery behind the popular song. Mm-hmm. It's a full-time job. It was remarkable in Wings that Linda McCartney could be a full-time band member and a mother of four kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was hard for her. And that was really the, the final demise of the band was that it just became too much. And the band was always Paul and Linda's band. So it, it's just, it's difficult to take care of the creative business and take care of the the business business. I've managed to be able to kind of balance the two, you know, the right brain and the left brain side Mm -hmm. of things. But it took me a long time to understand how to do it. And I'm still not that good at it, but I'm getting better. Now I've just started my own record label, which means... For my next release, which is a Christmas album, I had to license a certain number of tunes. So I go to Harry Fox's website and I buy licenses and then I discover that Sleigh Ride, written by Leroy Anderson, isn't handled by the Harry Fox agency. So I had to then contact his family who then put me in touch with BMG and I got a mechanical license there. And just those kinds of things that you know somebody in an office has to do well I Time just concerned yeah but but the th- technology now has allowed me to be able to stand and I, I have a standing desk I don't sit in my right. studio except when I'm playing guitar um, I I can sit there stand there and I can um, you know in one screen I can be taking care of that business on another screen I can be doing a guitar arrangement. Or, or writing um, an article for a guitar magazine or something like that, that. The ability to multitask, I think, has made it a lot easier. But when it comes to the, the kind of the higher level of things in terms of dealing with finances and, and the fact that wealth can come very quickly and having good wealth management is not anything that a music student is necessarily taught how to do, mm-hmm. or, or an aspiring pop star, especially the younger pop stars. I mean, that you know they're lucky when they've got a parent that's kind of keeping oversight.
2: So for people who want to find more of your writings and music, I usually send people to com L-A-U. Yep. Any other place or any other things that they would want to look for or at? Well, that's a good
1: place to start. And you can always just do a search on YouTube and find all kinds of stuff. I mean, I'm constantly finding stuff. <laughs> on YouTube. I found I found on my Wikipedia page I discovered that a Charles Aznavour album that I played on in Paris in 1977 was number one in France for almost an entire year I just and read I, that. And I had no idea.
2: I actually read that on but Wikipedia. I found it on my
1: Wikipedia page. because <laughs> I, I, you know, I never put that up. Somebody put it up. I mean I've, I've gone in there and I've kind of tweaked a few things. And that's the problem is not only now do you have to deal with the creative side, you also have to deal with the social network side and the, the, the web, the, the cyber presence aspect of things too. And I've always pretty much tried to manage myself with all of this because I had a business manager in England and it, you know, it did not end well. And it's like, okay, I, I'm not going down that route again. And I like being hands-on. And, and that's something I learned. Another thing I learned from Paul is how much he really kind of is hands-on with what he does.
2: We've been speaking with Lawrence Juber, guitarist for Paul McCartney. Uh, Thank you, LJ, for being so generous with your time. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the digital tape rolling and continue chatting about all things financial and music. Be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Are you looking to take your business to the next level? The accounting, tax, and advisory professionals from Cone Resnick can guide you. Cone Resnick delivers industry expertise and forward-thinking perspective that can help turn business possibilities into business opportunities. Look ahead. Gain insight. Imagine more is your business ready to break through learn more at cone slash breakthrough cone resnick accounting tax advisory
2: Lawrence thank you so much for doing this this has really been an absolute uh, pleasure and there's so much stuff to go over um, let's jump right into the, the crazy copyright stuff that's going on. <laughs> so last year we had, or two years ago, we had the Marvin Gaye yeah, blurred lines, blurred lines yeah. issue. Uh, uh, not too long ago, there was a huge Bloomberg story about the, the stairway to heaven copyright mm-hmm. issue. And then just recently, uh, there was another big copyright issue.
1: Yeah, the Ed Sheeran photograph one. I mean, it's the same lawyer that did the blurred lines. Oh, really? Yeah. Could, not um, to be
2: confused with the Tom Petty um, issue.
1: Uh, well, yeah, that was, uh, I won't back down the Sam Smith one, which, which, which was clearly, and Tom Petty agreed. Totally uh, and Or rather, Sam Smith agreed that there were. It, but, see, the thing about it is that there are. There are there's musical substance mm-hmm. that is. It works in such a way that sometimes you can accomplish, you can get to the same place from completely different routes. Right. Um, And you see that, um, for example, I mean, with the Stairway to Heaven case, right, that is going to trial, right, which uh, seem to be
2: based on very similar classical stanzas. Well, exactly
1: the um, the spirit song Taurus, Mm -hmm. which uses this. uses this kind of figuration mm-hmm. which actually if you if you break it down musically actually is the same as um, um, while my guitar gently weeps oh really
0: mm-hmm. and but, that which but, came but, first? but it doesn't
1: have the melody it doesn't have the same melody uh-huh. but but neither of them came first I mean you can They're go back but, but stairway to heaven see stairway to heaven goes down chromatically you can do the same thing with my funny da- valentine you know you can do that same thing um, you can do that kind of progression and when you do a progression like that here you have an, an A with an octave A above it you go down to the, C, the G sharp the harmony note is that
3: mm-hmm.
1: Now, now you're going to find that in a music textbook you know, that's part of the, the, the substance. That's the public domain aspect of music. You can, there's, a, there's a composition, uh, you can find it on YouTube, there's a, a sonata for guitar and, and violin from 1609 by an Italian composer named Granata, which has... Oh, that phrase shows up 30 seconds into it. You know, it's, it's not a unique phrase by any means and it's not the same phrase in the in the the spirit song because it's using the same kind of arpeggiation but that's a guitaristic thing
2: so you're a little skeptical on the Oh likelihood. I'm skeptical
1: on I'm skeptical on it because okay so there's a there's a fingerpicked acoustic guitar and there are recorders on the uh, on the um the spirit tune and there's recorders on the uh-huh. stairway to heaven and there's a moment where they there's a, a very similar overlap. sonority. Yeah, there's an overlap. But that's and really brief, isn't it? And Jimmy Page had access uh-huh. because Zeppelin opened for Spirit while they were performing that song. But it doesn't. To me, it it doesn't rise to the level of copyright infringement when it comes to the actual composition.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Could it come to that level in regards to the 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 feel, the sound, and feel of the recording? Perhaps. But does does that really apply? But a musicologist could draw the conclusion and sway a, a, a jury. And the reality is that a jury of one's peers, in this particular instance, should really be all Rock and Roll Hall of Famers right. in order to be able to to have a true a true, you know, a true uh, evaluation of it. it. It just goes to the the fact that intellectual property is probably best not tried in front of a jury like that because the the nuances of it are A beyond easy explanation. I I was a little
2: perplexed. Look, I'm a Marvin Gaye fan, Mm -hmm. but I also who didn't love the blurred line song that Mm -hmm. was everywhere. But I didn't really see that. Not really. Let's let's not even let's not even hedge it. I did not see one as having ripped off the other. There's a flavor there. Yeah, there's a
1: groove. There's a groove flavor to it. But putting a cowbell on a track is not copyright. Does not does not represent a breach of copyright and. I read the musicologist's report. You know, I, I studied musicology. Right. I read the musicologist's report. You could take Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star and show how there's an alignment of notes that corresponds in such a way that you could perhaps persuade an audience that song A was derived from that.
2: You know. Um, but it was the cowbell that gave it that feel. But
1: the cowbell, but, but the judge but- wouldn't let the jury listen to the record. Oh, the really? judgment was not on the basis of the record. The judgment was on the basis of the composition, mm-hmm. which was not the same thing. So I, I personally thought that that, was, that opened a can of worms. And As we've I, seen. I, I haven't yet looked into the Ed Sheeran one. That, that just came up on my radar early this morning, and I'm you know just busy running around. But I want to look into that because I, I have a suspicion that what's happening is that there's this movement to try and... Open up that area, but you know, for example, you take you take the Bo Diddley feel. Mm-hmm. Well, how many records, how many songs have used like that? George what are you Michael gonna give, had a huge hit with that. Yeah, are you going to give Bo Diddley royalties because they took the groove? You know, but, but all music is based on what what has come before. So then it, I mean, you could look at you know Ernest Kornfeld, the um, the great film composer you listen to some of his music and you put that next to John Williams' Star Wars and you can hear where John Williams got it from. Is it is it an actual breach of copyright? Well, if you're an aggressive lawyer with, a, with a, an aggressive musicologist, you could possibly make that case. But there has to be a recognition somewhere that there's a line that, there are only a certain number of notes. There are only a certain number of grooves, and there's only a certain kind of sonority. Does the sonority of a fingerpick guitar and a, and a recorder really rise to the level of, of a copyright infringement? You, you could say there's a blurred line, but I won't go there. Yeah, that's no. a terrible pun. <laughs> so, um, well, but in Blurred Lines case, of course, they opened the, the writers opened the can of worms by um, by preemptively seeking relief against being sued. Because they knew that they would they, they, they anticipated that that was going to happen. I, I
2: think that, and again, not to go all Marvin Gaye, but they did hear through the grapevine that yeah. a lawsuit was <laughs> a lawsuit was coming. I mean, that was really supposed to be out there. So once once are I think the family reached out to them, and that's why they yeah. uh, that's why yeah. they did it preemptively.
1: Yeah, um, write a hit, get a writ is the uh, is oh the really motto. yeah among songwriters because it it happens so often. Now, but but the, the, a lot of these lawsuits, I just think I, and I I'm they I don't know whether they rise to the level of abusive process, but you know when it's they certainly somebody look like tra- they're coming close. Yeah, when it's somebody's like you know say, well, you know this this little riff clearly you know was taken from my my song. You know there was the one with Madonna uh, Madonna record where the the judge said you know this horn stab right. was so de minimis that right. that they're not going to. That doesn't constitute something that needed to be licensed. Is to the, the even the the original recording copyright owners didn't notice for twenty years. <laughs> you know the George Harrison, uh, my, my my sweet, sweet lord. lord that, uh, you that's, know, there's a, a little, little bit there, but the songs are so different. But am so biased. But Alan Klein was on both sides of the lawsuit. How is that? He owned I mean? the publishing on on his so fine, the chiffons, his so fine, and he was also managing. So who brought who brought that suit? I think he did. (laughs) I don't remember the the exact details. It's it's a nasty business, isn't it? All right,
2: so I only have you for a limited amount of time, and I have lots of questions. All right, but I have to I have to play a little bit of let you play a little music. Okay. And this time I'm actually going to remember to record it. I'm
1: retuning. So which way are you going? I'm going back to dadgad. I I was in standard tuning just to really. How often are you in standard tuning? Half the time. Oh, really? Yeah. I I'd still live there. Right. It's just that um, my my second home is Daggett. <laughs> I thought that was
2: in California. By the way, how do you like being in, uh, to paraphrase the Sting song, how do you like being an Englishman in California?
1: Oh, I love being in California.
2: The weather, the geography, everything you know, about it's it. It's
1: just, I mean, I, I my roots have become so you know, entrenched there. I mean... Mm-hmm. You know, I've got two daughters and two grandchildren. (laughs) It's like I couldn't imagine going back to England, not just in terms of the weather, but also just being in America always seems like you can get more things done. There's always always a certain inertia
2: in England. Although, you know, the difference between... I was going to say, is that true in Europe in general? To some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just in Italy, and I was shocked to find that half of Italy... Uh, does the siesta like Spain does. Yeah. That that was always a... Uh... All right, so I'm going to record this. I'm going to put it on video
1: instead of a photo. Okay, I saw her standing there.
2: this down to applaud fantastic <laughs> so that was great so now,
1: now but here's an example that bass line paul got it from a chuck berry record okay i so, can but see that there's no copyright on a bass line like that
2: so how long does it take for you to take that original song and then rearrange it in a uh, to this guitar this tuning
1: it could be it could be 10 minutes it could be three months it just depends on really? the tune yeah
2: so I know. Again, another really surprising song is "I Am the Walrus."
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that took a while. I was going to say you yeah. could
2: hear, you could hear a lot of, of of effort and love went into putting that together. Again, it starts with the orchestration, not what you expect to hear. Mm-hmm. Let, let let's uh, get a, a little bit of that before we try a few originals. Fantastic. When are they going to start making a Martin acoustic with a whammy bar? Because I get the that sense is the that, whammy bar.
3: But, so
2: you're use you're just doing it that way without the actual yeah, bar itself. It's cool. I call it the virtual whammy bar. The, it, it is a virtual whammy <laughs> yeah. bar. So, so let's talk about some of the other stuff that you've recorded. I, and again, I know I yeah, only have I'm, you for. I only our, have a few minutes. We, we have to. So I mentioned. I want to talk about some of your originals, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about. The Wings album you did, mm-hmm. you said Paul actually had suggested
1: yeah. this. Well, gave him L. J. plays the Beatles, and he said, "Well, what about Wings? You know, because he's a publisher, it kind of he likes, can't like likes himself. people who record right. his tunes." So
2: I was a huge Beatles fan growing up, heartbroken at ten when the Beatles break up. but mm-hmm. heart, nine years old, but heartbroken. And then when some of the the Beatles songs, some of the Wings songs came out. And you know everybody loves Admiral Halsey, Uncle mm-hmm. Hal, and and, um, it, yeah. and there's a handful of songs from the from uh, Jet and Live and Let Die mm-hmm. and there's a whole bunch of st- stuff that's great. But there were some early songs of his that when we first heard them, it's like you know it really needs the acid wash of of John mm-hmm. to offset Paul's sweetness. But your covers completely changed my perspective mm. on it. So. Silly Love songs, Maybe I'm amazed. Mm-hmm. My Love, Listen to What the Man Said, I always thought of these as very light pop confection, mm-hmm. not serious music. Your covers of those reveal, we talked earlier about, you referenced revealing certain uh, emotional resonances mm-hmm. and nuances that may have gotten lost in, in the orchestration. And you've made me re-look these songs that I kind of, ah, that's fluff. because. They're really not they're
1: beautiful well, melodies you know you look at any of the the great American songbook songs, you know, just putting aside the anglo American mm-hmm. aspect of it but you look at Gershwin or Jerome Kern or Harold Allen, none of these writers were singers you know I, there were a few i mean um uh, you you know um Hoagy Carmichael for example uh-huh um but but typically, you know, they wrote songs for other people to sing. The idea of the songwriter as the artist making the records was, was really a sixties phenomenon. I mean, it, the Beatles were really the first one of the first bands, certainly the first band to achieve that level of success, mm-hmm. um, who wrote their own material, and and that was a battle they had to fight at the beginning with George Martin because, you know, they said George Martin said, Here's the song you're gonna record and they said, No. <laughs> and they did it begrudgingly and ended up, you know, how do you do it? Jerry and the pacemakers had a big hit with it. it so Mickey Most song. They said, We want to do our own songs. And we're writing songs that are good enough to do. You know, and and you when you go back in history and you realize that, you know, these composers were writing for other people. We've become so um Enamoured of the Beatles versions of the songs, that mm-hmm. to be able to take them and and strip it down to the same kind of musical fabric as you would get with a Gershwin song or or a, an Arlen song or a Jerome Kern song, um, then becomes an illuminating experience because the the nature of the music of it. Mm-hmm. Which is which is lovely. Yeah, it's lovely and it's you know, the what it's it's and it's it's so it's so nuanced and it's so musically clever without being obviously clever. But you have to kind of strip away the familiar. And Paul's voice is so familiar and you've heard it so many times that it's easy to lose track of, of what what the the underneath of that is what supports it
2: the only comparison I could think of I was a huge Pretenders fan oh yeah love the band love Chrissy Hines and they she ultimately released an album I think it was called Isle of View Mm -hmm. that's her and a string quartet in front Mm -hmm. of an audience a string quartet and similarly you discover wow these aren't just you know headbanging rock and roll songs they're great songs they're a beautiful right and Mm -hmm. and in in a number of ways, you have forced me to re look at a number of songs that I always kind of you know shrugged off, it, especially the wing songs. That mm-hmm. little that little stands you just played, yeah. that's a lovely little melody, and it's too easy to dismiss it as ah, it's just a pop
1: song until you hear it in that context. But you know, um, I got rhythm is just a pop song until you hear it sung by. You know Tony Bennett or, or or somebody. I mean, it's these are vehicles for interpretation, and that you know. And it's not like there aren't a million cover songs of Beatle records. You know, a lot of them have just kind of got lost over the years. That so you you know you have to rediscover. It's not just um, Joe Cocker doing with a little help from my friends, for example, which, right. which is you know one of those iconic, a seminal, versions, you know? right? Exactly. Um, I mean, there's a lot of them. You know. You
2: know. But it runs into that problem if it's too exacting, why bother? And if it's so far afield, I mean, Joe Cocker made that his own. Right. But there are so many covers you hear, and it's like, oh, I can't.
1: Well, you know, the, the, it's a business. I mean, the fact is I that guess. you have an artist, you have a record company, you have an artist and repertoire and our person who says, uh-huh. okay, we have to put together a repertoire for this album. And, and it's just it, how do you bring something fresh to it? Um, and it depends on the artist. It depends on the artistry. Involved.
2: So, speaking of artistry, let's talk about some of your uh, original songs. And in, in the last five or ten minutes, we have.
1: Yeah, I just have five, and then I. Gotta, so, I so, hit the road.
2: <laughs> I, I would. There's a number of questions I haven't even remotely gotten to. So let me ask you two quick questions before sure. we we get to your uh, some some of my favorite stuff of yours. So, you're in the business of being a professional musician. What do you do? When a recent college grad comes to you and says, I'm thinking of a career in music, what what sort of advice would you give to
1: that person? I would say, don't think about it, do it. Really?
2: <laughs> yeah. Despite all the changes and the challenges
1: in, the, in be, the field? Just be be educated. Be aware of where the revenue streams are. Be aware of, of how difficult it is to make a living
3: mm-hmm. as
1: a musician. And be properly prepared for it. See, I think that what happens is you get a lot of people who base their musical education on emulating somebody else right? without having the foundation to to build a career on. You know, there was a time when you could perhaps, you know, back in the 60s or the 50s, you could hear somebody and say, oh, I can do that and, you know, be do your own version of Johnny Cash or, or Elvis or whatever. But now, you know, the music business is so the The real kind of money end of the business is so focused on a certain segment of of audience, in terms of you know basically kind of pre-teens and teens. And you know if you're a female artist and you're over the age of twenty, then your your chances of getting signed to a record deal m- diminish quite rapidly. Um, one of the reasons my daughter, Ilsie, really focused on the songwriting side of it because it's if you make inroads as a songwriter, then you have more freedom as an artist you know it depends whether you want to be a pop star or when you, whether you want to be an artist and that i think the advice i would give is what are your goals do you simply want to be up on stage with lights and and um and groupies and you know is it just the glamour of it that that attracts you or is it a serious desire to make music and to make that your focus and and you know, so I think it's important to set realistic goals. Um, and it is possible to make money as a musician. But, you know, if you join a band and you go out on the road, don't expect to, at least so, not straight away.
2: So that leads me to a question I ask all my guests, which which is simply, what do you know today that you wish you knew when you started, let's call it 25, 30 years
3: ago?
1: I, I think I, I wish that I had been better informed about, the, the writing and the publishing side of it, so that I could have started that earlier. But I did it when I did it, and that's, that's fine.
2: So speaking of which, let, let's get one more uh, tune from you before you have to go out, which is, what what is your favorite original in terms of... Oh,
1: that's like asking which one is my favorite kid. Which, okay, so I,
2: I won't ask you that, but I will say, what, what's your favorite, not your favorite song, what's your favorite original song to play? What do you have the most fun playing? Which is a different
1: question. It's a, it is a different question, and um,
2: and I do notice when I when I saw you at the cutting room, you look like you're having a ball playing.
1: Oh yeah. Uh, let me let me do this one because it, it's a it's a tune called Catch, and it just it's I, I usually open the show with it because it just kicks everything into gear. Right.
2: Fantastic. I have the greatest job in finance. <laughs> Larry, thank you so much for being Larry. Larry. Ah. Larry where did that come from? Mm-hmm. LJ, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, you enjoyed, welcome. Terrific. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch for any of the other 97 or so conversations we've had. Uh, be sure and check out all of LJ's music and books and everything else. At Lawrencejuber.com. Uh, you've been listening to Masters in Guitar on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com/slash breakthrough.